Welcome back to Detroit Strange. This podcast. That you're listening to. Right now. That's Jazz. And that's Alex. We're getting good at that. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Matters on the mood. When I put my kind of like uh, reporter voice yeah. on, I feel it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to see us host just some local channel news just like once. That would be amazing. Except yeah. for they'd be like, um, we didn't call you here to talk about a potential haunting um i'd be like this is the news Mm -hmm. although sometimes they do actually report on that stuff oh for sure like they go down to like fort wayne or not fort wayne indiana but you know the fort (laughs) yeah yeah it's interesting because like i remember like trixie and katya did an episode about the news and trixie put a good point of like the news is like a weird mixture of this dog fashion show happening near you. And then two people were grisly murdered outside of this, like whatever, you know, there's no in between. No, it's no. It's like fluff pieces. And like this guy was murdered outside this Arby's yesterday. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a very mixed bag of short snippets. Yeah. Is what it is. It rarely goes deep. Yeah. In anything. So it's everything and nothing all at once. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, I can't say I've watched local news often in the past decade, but... Yeah, like high school was the last time I remember watching it like regularly. Because it was just kind of like beyond when we were getting ready for school or whatever. Yeah. It was kind of like... We were like a Channel 7 household usually. Mm -hmm. I mean, the development of people kind of like leaving behind cable and stuff is like transition things like media so much. And, you know, the internet is media. Yeah. It's just wild how much has changed looking back to what it was. Because it was kind of like, you know, you had the newspaper and magazines were longer stories. Yeah. And then you had, you know, the television news. Yeah. Or these short little snippets of things. They were kind of like Twitter. Yeah. Before Twitter, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I was just talking about magazines with friend of the show, Molly. Love Molly. Yeah. It's because she and some friends run a magazine, Ugly Magazine. Yeah. The reason it came up is because I was outside and she came up and I had two magazines in front of me. Mm-hmm. Out and out traveler. She's <laughs> like, oh, look at you with your magazines. And people are always like, oh, it's so cute. I'm like, I mean, yeah, but I also, I just can't figure out how to cancel it. And so, <laughs> and it's nothing against the magazine. I love the magazine. I just mm-hmm. like never think to read them. So they yeah. just kind of pile up around my house. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is the problem with yeah. magazines. But I do love a magazine at the same time. I haven't had one in a long time, but... I miss it. Like in high school, I had a Rolling Stone subscription. Yeah. So that was like my main magazine. And I, I, I had a smattering of other ones yeah. probably aimed towards teenage girls or something. But there was something super exciting about the day that that Rolling Stone yeah. would get there and opening it up and like doing the first like flip through to just kind of overview it yeah. all and then go back and start diving into the parts I wanted to the most. And also, I don't know. I love a collage. I loved using them later yeah. to create something different. And the whole process of it was fun. And and it was when I first started teaching in art, when I was an art teacher, it was the same thing of like, I'd always, you know, put a call out for like supplies yeah. or donations for supplies. And magazines was like always on the list. Yeah. And it was interesting over the decade that I was doing that, that to see 
at first there was like plenty and then yeah. it would like die off and maybe somebody had a re- like random national geographic stack laying around. Oh yeah. And now I don't feel like you could even like, I mean, you could still ask, but are you going to get anything from me? They would, but like, I remember like growing up, we were a people household where we got people magazines yeah. weekly for mm-hmm. a long time. I think, I don't know if my mom still gets them or if they even do weekly anymore, but I'd imagine they still do it because there is still enough people who never canceled their subscriptions. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the out magazine when they can't cancel. I also like don't care much because it's like 20 bucks a year. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it's like really not that big of a headache, hassle, or deal. Mm-hmm. And like, you know what? It is going to be the season where I'll read more. I definitely read more during the summer. Okay. Because outside. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I love just holding up in my hammock. Like that's what I was doing before yeah. we got here. I was out there with a the book reading. I need to get a hammock stand. I have two hammocks, but no hammock stand. I love it. I like, I'm so excited for it to be outdoor season again because mm-hmm. I can just go lay out my hammock. It's almost time to set the hot tub back up. Mm-hmm. And it's just nice to have just like relaxing outdoor space. Yeah. Because I pretty much otherwise just live in my basement. Yeah. No, I think my backyard is just a big open field yeah. of sun. I mean, it's not big, but there's nothing to it basically. Yeah. And I was thinking maybe like a hammock would be a really good idea. Oh, absolutely. Just to have somewhere to go sit. Because I'll sit on my front porch sometimes, but that gets kind of like. Yeah. Sometimes. I don't like sitting on a front porch because then people walk by and it's like, you know, it doesn't like I like. (laughs) You have to do the customary nod or like, hi, you know. Hey, dear. Yeah. Also stop what you're doing. Kind of like look up to see if you're going to make eye contact to do the customary nod or hi. Yeah. And like. I don't know. I much prefer a, bre- a backyard. Yeah. Just sit out there, you know. Relax. Chill Although there back. is this guy that's just been chilling at the, like the church assembly of God random building that's behind my house. And he's just like, woo. Oh, just interesting. Like every couple, you know, like me and Molly were sitting out there. And we're like, woo. And just like. He's living his life. He really is. I kind of wish he would do it elsewhere, but. um. <laughs> Sure. Not as bad as the dog that was howling for an hour today. I mean, that's that's what uh, city suburbs yeah. you know, are, are like, um, you know. I've gotten on board with earplugs for a lot of things. So yeah. maybe I can. Uh, or headphones. That too. Listen that, to something. Even if it's just like background. You can just like just go to YouTube. Yes. Or, or like hurt. Like look up just HZ. Uh-huh. And anything that comes up on there is like, you know, like meditation type music. Oh, like yeah. stuff you would have in a spa. Just put that on the background. Yep. Reprogram yourself while you're doing whatever. Yep. And drown out those motherfuckers. Yeah. It's the dog for me. I hope the dog's okay. Same. No. Yeah. But it, the nice thing is, is it's getting nice out where I can have the problems of outside. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. No, I, I was in a much better mood just instantly from the sun being out. It was oh, like yeah. night and day. I went to Eastern Market for the first time in forever. Yeah. And it was like on a whim. I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. Like yeah. I'd forgotten I could do that. Oh, totally. Like I like I feel in the winter I forget I can like go places and do things. Mm-hmm. Like today I walked down to the Rust Belt and got this super cute vintage shirt that I'm really excited about. Cause they had like a vintage fashion mm-hmm. clothes market yeah. in like the center of it now, which is really cool. The Rust Belt's a great oh yeah fun outing. Yeah. It was nice. Today's, we're recording on Mother's Day, so my mom, we kind of just walked around. That's lovely. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I came across a piece of news. It's not like 
huge news, but it kind of is. Yeah. I think it's really neat. Have you heard anything recently about something being spotted in the Detroit River that hasn't been seen for over 100 years? Yes. Was it otters? Yes. Yes. They spotted a river otter in the river, which is just really cool because... A hundred years yeah. and otters are very cute. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, I believe a man from Windsor is the one who spotted it and snapped a picture of it, but it's just, they haven't been here for decades. And then I guess we'll, we'll be specific on April 25th, a video taken by uh, St. Marie that was uploaded to Twitter defied historic expectations about the city's dwindling wildlife. Love it. Love the dramatic, like the headline for that dwindling wildlife. Yeah, but at first he thought it was like a mink or a muskrat, you know, or something like yeah. that, which like you don't really see around here either, Yeah, or at least too often. But as it got closer, he realized it was an otter. That's super cute. Oh. Yeah, I love otters. They're so, they're interesting in the fact that there's like, they can live in vastly different yeah. water. <laughs> I mean, they're different otters, I believe, I yeah. think, but. I love that they hold hands as they float oh, down the river so they don't lose each other. It's so, so sweet. Cute. Yeah. But yeah, it's a good sign and we need to celebrate good signs sometimes. We absolutely do. And I love it. And it made me so happy. And I was like, oh, we have to talk about it. That reminds me of a much less inspiring and great story that I saw related to things found in water. Ooh, fantastic. Tell me more. Lake Mead out in, I think, Nevada. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, all time low level right now because oh. of the me- mega drought and whatever. And basically, like, uh, they found a body in a drum. Oh, no. And they're basically just kind of like, can't wait to see all the murders that we didn't know what happened. Yeah. Now we'll know. Lakes are... Uh, they yeah. They hide some shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. If people know what they're doing. Yeah. Unfortunately. Well, you know Sounds what, Sounds like they though? did if it was in a drum. In the... Yeah. If, the positive note there. Yeah. Maybe they'll be able to solve... Something yeah. unsolved. Maybe we'll so, find Carol Baskin's husband. Just kidding. He was eaten by a tiger. We all know it. I don't we all know think it. so, though. You don't think so? No. I mean, I go, I flip flop, but I did watch the Carol versus Joe show. And it, I mean, granted, it was a created show. Yeah. With, you know, scripts, a scripted piece. But I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's what happened. I haven't seen either of the, like, I haven't seen Tiger King season one or two. I really know much about it. Other than she was on Dancing with the Stars, which is that is weird. Gross. Yeah, I'm not saying like she's great. You know what I'm not like. Yeah, she's the best. The show definitely put you in the perspective that. Whereas I feel like the documentary put you more in one perspective. The TV show put you more in the other. Yeah, uh, kind of of events, and it gave a little bit more background, I believe. You know, into her like her life and like that marriage. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I I don't necessarily think that's true. I think I think he was into some shady dealings anyway. Yeah. And uh, yeah, because it was something like he he went and took a it was either a boat or a plane, and he was going to some random island or something. And then one does apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't really know. But yeah. But I don't know. Me neither. Who knows? We'll focus on the otters. <laughs> but maybe they will find... Um, Jimmy Hoffa? Yeah. Oh. That's where I was going. <laughs> we'll keep our eyes... Uh, keep your eyes and ears out, listeners. Always. If you hear... Yeah. If you ever hear anything about where Jimmy Hoffa. Where in the world is Jimmy, Jimmy Hoffa? Hoffa? We may never know. 
We may never know That's, what we want to know. Yeah. Like many things, though. Yeah. I just had a conversation yesterday about how the the unknown is always kind of very interesting to me. Yeah. Even if it's something we'll never know. I think that's why I like paranormal stuff yeah. a lot too. Cause it's like, mm, I don't know. Like the things that you really just like can't be certain of ever. Yeah, exactly. I get into that stuff. <laughs> oh, for sure. Also, I have one comedy TV show recommendation. Okay. I forget what network it's on. It's one of the, it's either like Paramount or it's probably Peacock. I think it's Peacock. Okay. But it's called Killing It. Okay. Have you? I feel like I've heard of it, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. It's basically, it's Craig Robinson, who you know from The Office. Who do you play in The oh, Office? Oh, wait, was he in The Office? I think he was one of the um the warehouse okay. dudes. I It's been so long since I've watched The Office. Let me see. He's been in a lot of things. Honestly, I didn't watch The Office that much, so I don't know why I took that one. And I'm like, was he in The Office? I think he was. In, yeah, he was definitely in The Office. <laughs> I don't know. He's been in a bunch of, like, comedy-type things. You definitely have seen him. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about now. Yeah, and then Claudia O'Doherty, who I absolutely adore and love. She's been in quite a few things, too. She's always, like, um, she's got a, Well, she's Australian, first of all, so... That's fun. Yeah. I don't know. She's been in like a lot of comedy things. She was like on the show Love as one of the main characters, like roommates and stuff. And she's great. But the two of them are like an odd couple kind of situation Yeah, uh, where they end up pairing up and they're trying to kill pythons in Florida because apparently they're not native to Florida and killing them. You like collect money for every python you kill florida has a lot of weird things <laughs> i'm like not that. sure if this is real i mean like this well, no, is a show but it probably like is fish or some kind of like exotic fish that's been like plaguing them where like it's kind of like you're supposed to kill these fish and you can eat them oh interesting yeah yeah no the it's one of those type of deals for sure yeah but it's stu- it's like stupid comedy yeah but i really liked it but i think i just like the two of them yeah. Like together, acting together. They were, it, it, I, yeah. Like it's a very absurd, farcical kind of situation, but it was Do they a fun ever use a line, round. I'm tired of these motherfucking pythons or this motherfucking peninsula? <laughs> I don't think they do, but they this, should. That would be great. Yeah. But yeah, I watched it a few weeks ago and it was just like a nice, different, yeah, stupid thing for a second. And yeah. it's only like one season. So it was not a huge undertaking. And like yeah. the episodes are short. Not long. Yeah. yeah. I love a good show like that every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I need to tell somebody about this. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, are we ready for a story? I think we're very ready for a story. I can't wait. Good, because this one is a doozy. Love it. The information for today's story all came from the book To Hell I Must Go, hyphen, the true story of Michigan's Lizzie Borden. Okay. It's by a man named Rod Sadler, who actually is related to one of the law officials in the book. Yeah. Like, I think it was his great-great-grandfather was involved in this. Okay. We are going on a bit of a road trip. We are going to Williamston. Okay. So that is near Lansing in Ingham County, probably a little over an hour from Detroit. Okay. Just drive west. I think it's near like Dansville, Mason. Yeah, I've heard of that. Kind of areas. Yeah. So. The year 
It's going to be very dramatic. Yes. The year is 1897. Okay. It's Friday, April 23rd. A man named Alfred Haney, a.k.a. Alfie, as he will be known, has just come home for lunch from a gig that he got as a day laborer. Okay. Having only had an apple that morning, he was ready for something a little bit more filling, naturally. Yeah. But when he arrived home, he discovered his front door hanging on one hinge instead of the two it usually was. And the wood wasn't kind of splintered. Not a good sign. No. As he continued into the house, nothing would prepare him for what he was about to see. Oh, no. Which we'll get to in a bit. Uh, okay. Okay. So, Jacob Rayleigh, a.k.a. J.J. Rayleigh, was sheriff of Ingham County, Michigan, and he had only been in the position since January of 1897. Okay. He woke on the morning of April 23rd to a day that started as any others in his house slash jail in Mason, Michigan. Okay. Yeah, because it was like the the, sheriff lives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then he received a telegraph reading. Killing in the village. Stop. Come immediately. Stop. Signed, J. Loringer. I love that telegrams have stop in it so much. I know. JJ took the train into the now somewhat bustling village of Williamston. Williamston was one of those villages on a train stop that basically had grown in size, gotten new businesses in the past couple decades. And became incorporated in April of 1871. So kind of newer to bustling, but bustling. Yeah. Sheriff Reilly, which it's R-E-H-L-E. Okay. He was age 50, just a little bit about Sheriff Reilly. Okay. He was 50 at the time. He stood over six foot tall. Dang. And he had a thick mustache, small goatee, thick black hair, and very well-groomed appearance. Okay. He harbored a slight German accent as he had been born in Bavaria and came to America with his parents at the age of three. Okay. They first settled in Greenfield Township in Wayne County near Detroit, but after five years moved to Ingham County and settled with several other families of German descent. Okay. His father had built a homestead near the village of Williamston and began to farm. JJ also farmed with his family even after starting out on his own. Mm -hmm. He married a woman also of German descent named Sarah Landeberger in June of 1869. Eventually, though, J.J. got kind of into politics by way of starting as Wheatfield Township Treasurer in 1871. Okay. Eventually, a local farmer suggested that he run for sheriff, uh-huh. which, you know, kind of a big position. Yeah. At first, J.J. kind of like laughed it off like, you're so funny, Fred, or whatever. Yeah. But as he thought about it, he kind of came around and liked it. Yeah. And so he talked to Sarah, his wife, and eventually she was on board, too. Really supporting the idea. Yeah. In 1897, JJ and Sarah settled nicely into their new lives, living in a, the house attached to the jail, specifically Ingham County Prison. Mm-hmm. Sarah even helped tend to inmates by doing things like cooking their meals and other duties as needed. Yeah. She even eventually went on to be known for her great efforts in stopping a jailbreak. Nice. Yeah. So pretty involved. Yeah. On April 23rd, the date we are talking about, JJ took the train to Williamston and he met with Deputy J.W. Loringer. Loringer was the only deputy on duty that day in the village. Yeah. The men greeted and they stepped into the muddy streets to walk towards 320 Elevator Street. Okay. The house in question wasn't too far from the depot. They just had to pass the stave mill, which what's a stave mill? Because I was like, I have no no idea. It never said it in the book. So I guess I did use Wikipedia. But basically they produced narrow strips of wood that were used for barrels. Okay. Yeah. I was like, okay, that makes sense that that would have like been a thing. Yeah. Barrels were quite popular back then. That's how they transported everything. They didn't like really create. I mean, I guess they had crates and stuff too, but most stuff was barrels. At least goods. 
I wonder when Crate and Barrel was founded. <laughs> right now. Yeah. 1897 <laughs> in Ingham, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like, I'm sick of this stave mill. I want, I don't know what crate. You got barrel yeah. in my crate. And you got crate, <laughs> crate in, in my, my barrel. barrel. <laughs> Let's make furniture. Uh, Yep. Yep. That's how it was born. Yeah. So the two men, they crossed the train tracks in silence. There's kind of, you know, a heaviness to yeah. the, the day. They passed by the stave mill where nearby workers slowed down to stop and watch the two men walk by. Word of what had happened that morning had spread quickly. Ooh, small town word spread. Mm-hmm. So soon the men arrived at the small house just beyond the mill. They walked up to it and they noticed a small crowd of people had gathered. Some were crying and a small collection of horse-drawn carriages were scattered about. Mm-hmm. A hush settled over the crowd as the two men approached. All eyes were on them. Deputy Loringer, who'd already been inside, described the horrific scene they were about to witness, but nothing could prepare J.J. for what he was about to see. Before entering the house, he asked where the perpetrator was. Loringer explained that he had sent for the village's other deputy, Bill Whitehead, as soon as he'd heard of the murder, and Bill had come and taken the assailant to the village lockup while they waited for J.J. Okay. So we have... The murderer already. Yeah. It's not going to be a whodunit. I can tell you that for sure. Okay. The house itself was very simple. It was just a rectangle, no porch, two windows. And at this time, the front door, as mentioned, was hanging on a single hinge. The other had been broken that morning. The house faced south towards the railroad tracks, which are only about 100 feet from the door. So relatively close. Yeah. That'd be horrible. Absolutely. I can hear the train tracks from here and I'm not that close. Mm -hmm. Under the house, there was a small cellar. The property contained no trees and the house was also unpainted. So it was just like weathered yeah. boards. As the men got closer, JJ noticed that there were holes cut into the wooden door, looking as if someone had destroyed it. Because today, I guess I should have a... Today's episode is going to feature some very uh, queasy material. I do apologize in advance. I well, knew a little bit about this, but not the full thing until I started reading it. So if you're queasy... Or just recently I ate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just know that the, just the know that that's gonna happen, and you know, skip ahead to two trees in a line. Yeah, actually, no, skip ahead like ten minutes. Okay. When he approached that door, he noticed a large pool of blood just beyond it. It had congealed and had large clumps of gray hair mixed into it. Ooh. He then noticed cuts similar to the door in the wooden flooring of the front room or the main room. Yeah. He stepped inside carefully and noticed a carpet had been ripped up from the floor, but remnants remained. A chair was overturned in the corner and near it, a picture frame sat empty and broken glass was strewn about. Okay. Along one wall, there was a small sofa covered in blood and another trail of blood led from the front door to the rear of the house. Facing to the south inside the living room on his right, he noticed a bedroom, no door, only a drape pulled to the side. It seemed that space didn't really seem disturbed. Mm Mm-hmm. He then followed the smeared blood from the living room into the kitchen with Loringer behind him. Inside the kitchen, the trail of blood continued toward the back door. There was no doubt a body had been drugged through the house at this point. Uh-huh. On the floor before him lay what appeared to be a corpse. It was covered in loose clothing, and it was also obvious that it had been attempted to be set on fire. Oh, damn. I mean, it was, I said attempted. It was set on fire. Yeah. The only distinct feature he could make out, though, was hands, and he couldn't see a head. Oh, wow. On the table sat dirty dishes covered in the remnants of dried food from multiple days, and to no surprise, more blood. Yeah. 
Seems like it's everywhere. But that's when he saw it. Oh, no. At the center of the table. Oh, centerpiece style. No. His stomach began to turn immediately when his eyes came into focus. There sat an older woman's head on a dinner plate at the center of the table. Oh, my God. Yeah. Disgusting. Not what I ordered. No. It was specifically turned towards one place setting. It had one fork on one side and a knife on the other. Oh, God. Dry blood caked the hair, the plate, and the tabletop. JJ even noticed that there were cuts and bruises all over the face as well. Mm. So this is nothing that anybody should ever have to see. Right. JJ left the kitchen to survey the rest of the house. As he continued to expect, he entered the bedroom he'd seen earlier. He noticed that although it seemed undisturbed, the window on one side was broken inward with some glass strewn about and a little bit of blood about as well. Eventually, the stench of the house, though, was too much because we have not just a body. There's also some sort of fire situation happening. It's a lot going on. Yeah. So JJ ran outside. He started to gag. But eventually he paused and started to smell the, the sawmill next door, which was like just delightful in comparison. Fresh cedar, you mm-hmm. know, fresh cut wood. Then under his breath, he could be heard to say, Mein Gott. Mein Gott? Mein Gott. Oh, okay. Yeah. My God. Yes. In German. Yeah. This book was very specific. <laughs> I love it. After a few moments, the men almost in silence began to search the exterior. Here they found a trail of blood that led to some stairs at the rear door. And there behind some boards lying under the stop of the building, they found a blood-soaked axe. Damn. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Lorinder picked up the axe, and as they came back around to the front of the house, the crowd out front gasped upon the sight of the weapon. (gasps) (gasps) So J.J. Rayleigh then asked Lorinder where the killer's husband was, and he was told that he was with some friends somewhere in town. Killer's husband said it was a lady. Lady murderous. Mm-hmm. They would have to talk to him, but first they headed back to speak with the assailant. So Deputy Whitehead, the one who had taken the assailant, yeah. was anxiously awaiting their arri- arrival at lockup. He showed them to the suspect, reporting that the only thing she had said so far was that she had killed her mother-in-law. Well. Which was not news. That's exactly what she'd said to Loringer when he first arrested her. So a little bit about the assailant. Yeah. Her name was Martha Haney, and she was the wife of Alfie Haney. Yeah. Deputy Loringer left JJ while he went to go find Dr. Shumway, a local doctor, yeah. to explain to examine the prisoner and her mental state. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of talk about mental state in this particular one, which I'm sure is no surprise in this yeah. part of it. But I also want to say that mental illness was treated much differently Yeah, in the late 1800s. Yeah. So when JJ approached Martha, she sat on the floor wrapped in a blanket. She was small in stature and somewhere between 25 and 32 years old. She appeared very malnourished and very slight. Her eyes were close set and quite dark. Mm -hmm. So JJ introduced himself as sheriff and he was met with silence. Martha stared at the floor. JJ asked her name and again, met with silence. Silence was broken by a voice from outside. Lorinder had arrived with Dr. Shumway and had also found Dr. Shaw, another local doctor. Mm -hmm. Dr. Shumway at this point noted that he actually had an appointment to see Martha on this very morning. Oh, wow. Yes. It had been arranged by her husband the day before when he saw him in town. When the doctors entered, 
They approached the cell and Martha glanced towards them, but quickly turned her gaze back towards the floor. Mm -hmm. Dr. Shumway introduced the men and was met with more silence. He tried to ask if she knew where she was, but she responded with a slow nod. Dr. Shaw then noted that they were doctors and not men of the law to try and, you know, comfort her. Martha gave a quick glance and Shumway then told her that they had learned something terrible had happened at her house today. Martha nodded and the doctor continued on asking what had happened. Then in a very slight voice, Martha said, I killed my mother-in-law. She slowly raised her head and stared at both men. But she said, it's like, what you going to do about it? Yeah. Dr. Shumway continued to ask questions, mostly met with silence. And as the two doctors were out to leave, Martha broke the silence by noting that she had a quarrel with her mother-in-law and that the old woman had struck her. She told them she put a picture of her kids in a frame, but the frame belonged to Mariah, the mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. And they'd gotten in a fight over it. Then Martha stated that Mariah had pushed her down and she'd made up her mind to kill her. A little extreme, but okay. Mm-hmm. It gets worse. Shumway asked what happened next and Martha replied, quote, I said, hold on now. And I turned her over and I killed her and she did not kill me. <laughs> I know. I killed her, but she did not kill me. I know. Yeah. So... They asked about the axe next, and Martha continued, quote, I don't know. I might. I killed her anyway. And then I got on her with my feet and jumped up over as hard as I could. Yes, I did. My mother told me to kill her. Okay. Is her mother living or dead? Do we know? Her mother is definitely not living. She had passed seven years earlier okay. in Ionia. There was actually rumors about town that Martha spoke frequently with her deceased mother and had been seen doing so on yeah. numerous occasions. And there were other rumors that were spread that her mother possibly had died in an asylum in Ionia in 1890. But this was never confirmed or denied. So the doctors had both also seen Martha kind of doing this about town before. So they weren't necessarily shocked uh, in this instance. They pressed on asking her if she had been talking with her mother this very morning. Martha then whispered, She comes to me every once in a while. She has been talking a great deal lately. She was talking to me all the while. She told me to kill the old lady or she would kill me. I told her I did not want to kill her, but she kept saying, kill her. So I killed her. Dang. Yeah. So the men eventually left the building and provided their professional opinions, which was the obvious. Yeah. As they departed, Martha began to cry, followed by sitting back on the floor again with her head hung down and her hands clasped behind her head for protection Mm -hmm. for hours. So Loringer, in the meantime, had left to find Martha's husband, Alfie. Alfie was also of slight stature, and Mm -hmm. he was found at the local saloon with his friends. His eyes began to water as Loringer approached him to tell him that the sheriff would like to speak with him. Ooh, he knew something was up. Alfie was the one who came home and found it and then ran away in that first chunk. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So he knew. He'd been new. He, yeah. He'd already seen it and then just kind of, he ran away to actually find the, sh- the deputy. That makes sense. Yeah. But like news spread so fast. It, the book said that, um, I believe he went and found the, the deputy. Mm-hmm. Other ones said that he just ran away. But yeah. regardless, he ran. Yeah. And he ran. He ran, he ran so, so far away. So. He couldn't get away. <laughs> Clearly, Alfie was like, yeah, fine with talking. He was distraught, but also like, yeah, "Yeah, we can talk. 
So they learned a little bit more about Alfie and Martha and Mariah, his mother. Uh, Alfie had married Martha Woodard in 1894. So just like three years earlier. Yeah. Martha was one of seven children raised on the Pierce farm a few miles to the south and west. Mm. She did have one brother named Richard in Mason that Alfie knew of and another one in Lansing. Mm -hmm. The the rest of her siblings had married and started families of their own. And the youngest one, Odie, had died before the age of 13. Mm. In 1884, at the age of 16, Martha had married a man named John Woodard. He was five years her senior. They had three children together, but Woodard would go on to leave her. JJ then asked Alfie about the children, but he had no idea about their whereabouts. Yeah. Which is a little strange. When they'd gotten married, the children were already gone, though. He figured Woodard had taken them with him, and he didn't really ask about them or press the issue. Yeah. She once had told him that the oldest boy was in Ohio and her daughter in Pennsylvania. Interesting. Now, there was a third one, though, too. And there was a rumor around town that about eight years earlier, when she was living with her parents after her first marriage, she took her third and youngest child, who was 10 months at the time, on foot to Lansing. Mm -hmm. After a few days, she returned without him. She told everybody that she had given the boy away, but many locals had some suspicions. Yeah. It would later go on, though, to be proven that she actually did go and she gave her child to a man named Reverend W.S. Sly. Okay. And he was a man known for taking in homeless children. Yeah. And it was proven with a testament from her sister who witnessed the exchange and had also done the paperwork as Martha couldn't do the paperwork. She couldn't read. Yeah. So still weird situation, but not suspect anymore. But the first two children, their whereabouts were never known of again. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So Alfie didn't know much more about his wife. He only knew her father was elderly and that her original name was Martha Pierce. Mm Mm-hmm. After getting married, Alfie and Martha had originally settled in Leroy Township with his mother, Mariah. Mariah and her late husband, John, a Civil War veteran, had been amongst the original settlers of that township. But John had passed away in 1872, leaving Mariah to raise their three children, Alfie, his brother, Riley, and their sister, Louise. Mm-hmm. In the late 1890s, Mariah was now in her 80s and even with Alfie's help, was unable to keep up the family farm. Mm-hmm. That is when they moved to the small cottage near the railroad in Williamson. Mm-hmm hoping Alfie could find work as a day laborer, mm-hmm. which he did from time to time, but unfortunately not enough, particularly in the winter months. Yeah. This is when they had to rely on the financial help of the village. Mm-hmm. So Alfie had known something was wrong with his wife for quite some time, as did many locals. Mm-hmm. Many saw Martha, as mentioned, speaking to no one. Yeah. Um, Alfie at one point had been told she was prone to epileptic fits when she was younger, but he'd never witnessed one. Yeah. What he had witnessed, though, was her temper. It was not anything to mess with. It yeah. kind of zero to 60, I think, very quickly from what it sounded like. From what I heard, I can believe it. Yeah. So Alfie's mother, Mariah, never really cared for Martha. Yeah. And it's obvious that feeling was mutual. Yeah. <laughs> very obvious. Mariah had tried to convince him not to marry Martha, but to no avail. Mm-hmm. And Alfie knew that she fought often, usually when he was away working, but sometimes in his presence. He knew that they were prone to things like yelling and pushing, but he said that they never struck each other, at least that he knew of prior to this. Yeah. Over the last three weeks, though, things had become more difficult. Mm -hmm. Martha's one-sided conversations had become everyday occurrences, whereas before it was kind of sometimes. Yeah. And her temper was starting to get worse. Mm -hmm. But finally, in early April, Alfie found some work, and so he was leaving the house more often. 
On April 22nd, so the day before the event, Alfie was walking downtown and he spotted Dr. Shumway. He approached and told the doctor of his wife's behavior and they arranged to meet the next morning. Uh-huh. And when Alfie arrived home that evening, he didn't know how to tell Martha of their appointment the next morning because he knew she wouldn't be happy or want to go. Right. So he walked in and the smell of cabbage kind of permeated the air. You know, they're getting ready for dinner. And he looked for Martha. She was in the backyard staring at nothing. His mother stayed inside finishing up the cooking. And he told his mother about the appointment for the next day with Dr. Shumway. Uh Mariah, his mother, wondered how he was going to convince Martha to go. Yeah. He was like, that's, she's not going to want to go. Like, what are you going to say? Yeah. He then started going to get ice cream. Yeah. Well, and he was supposed to be working. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he looked out the back door to see Martha still staring and she began to speak, but no one was there. So he called her inside for supper. The three sat down together to eat. Alfie broke the news to Martha about the upcoming appointment. Yeah. She insisted nothing was wrong with her. And then panic started to set in and she tightened her shawl around her shoulders and her demeanor worsened. The room was very tense. So Mariah, his mother, got up and avoided eye contact with Martha and went to the bedroom just off the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Martha continued to sit and stare at her plate for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So basically everybody's kind of moving and stuff and she's just still sitting there. Yeah. After dinner, Alfie finished a cigar and he headed toward the other bedroom off the living room when Martha finally got up from the table. She walked into the living room and began to scream. It's not my fault. It's the old woman's fault. Mm -hmm. Then she told Alfie she wanted Mariah out of the house. Alfie told Martha it was his idea to see the doctor, not his mother's. Mm -hmm. But she continued to insist that Mariah leave. Yeah. She stared at Alfie, but he didn't budge. So when Martha realized that she wasn't going to win the battle, she went to the living room and laid down on the hardwood floor, stared into space, and finally fell asleep like that. Interesting. Okay. Which she apparently, I didn't write this, but she apparently did that kind of often, like slept on the wood floor. So the next morning, April 23rd, the day of everything, after a difficult night's sleep, Alfie woke up, got dressed, and headed into the living room. His wife wasn't there, though. He found her in the kitchen by the stove. She turned around to him and gave him a big smile. She assured him that she was feeling much better. There was no need to see the doctor today. Yeah. It must have been pretty convincing because Alfie decided one more day wouldn't hurt and he could get a day's work in and then ask the doctor to meet on Saturday. Alfie told his mother of the change and then headed out to work. Uh Uh-huh. Martha had been in and out of sleep all night as one is when they're sleeping on a hard floor. Yeah. After Alfie left, Mariah, his mother, told Martha that she, I I keep saying it's mother because Mariah and Martha are almost the same name. Yeah. <laughs> and it was really hard to write. Right. Um, Mariah told Martha that she was going to start cleaning up. So Martha agreed to help. Uh-huh. Mariah stacked dishes from the night before, returned to her bedroom, got dressed. Martha cleaned in the living room. Mariah came out to the bedroom and noticed that Martha had her back to her. It appeared something was in her hands, but she couldn't see it. It was just kind of weird. Yeah. Martha then left through the front door and walked between the house and the stave mill where a few workers, John Robinson and Will Wigant, spotted her raising a kitchen utensil into the air, swinging it around and singing a spiritual song. Okay. So later in the morning, Mariah went outside to pump some water, beat some rugs, you know, normal house stuff. Yeah. 1897. She then brought the rugs back in where Martha was in the living room, standing very still, staring at a picture on the wall now. And it was in a frame that usually held a photo of her late husband. Uh Uh-huh. So Mariah was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Then she looked at the photo 
It was a picture of three children. Although she'd never seen this photo or any photos of Martha's children, she knew immediately this was Martha's children. Yeah. So she was pretty infuriated. She thought it very disrespectful to like remove her photo from her frame and put yeah, another a, one into it. It's yeah. Weird of a move. And so she took a swing at Martha. Martha then pushed Mariah back and Mariah stumbled to the floor. Mariah got angry and demanded to know where the photo of her husband was. Martha just smiled and asked Mariah if she thought the children were beautiful. The men next door could hear the arguing, but this wasn't completely unusual. So like they yeah. made note of it, basically. It's like, oh, they're at it again. Mm -hmm. Martha was then seen storming out the front door, mumbling to herself, don't let her do this. Okay. So Martha stood in the front yard, glaring, and she slowly turned, to turned back towards the house. But when she got to the door, it wouldn't budge. Mariah had locked her out. I mean... I get it. Yeah. So Mariah was inside tearing the photo of the three children out of the frame and searching for the photo of her husband to replace it with. And Martha was frantically trying to get back into the house. She was getting pissed. Yeah. So this is when Martha grabbed an axe that she saw leaning on the side of the house. She marched to the front door and started swinging. Martha heard the commotion from her bedroom and was stunned to walk into the living room and see an axe coming through the front door. So she began to scream murder. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, the workers, like I said, they were kind of accustomed to things. Yeah. So they didn't notice Martha pick up an axe in this part of it. They'd right. already kind of like gone back to work. Right. Once Martha got through and into the house, Martha smirked and Mariah continued to scream murder. Warning, it's going to be graphic again for a second. Martha then brought the blunt side of the axe across Martha's face, knocking her back and shattering her cheekbones. Mariah was now laying on the floor and reached for the edge of the couch. She struggled to move away, but was hit once again with the blunt head of the axe. Blood began to pour from her split face. Ooh. Yeah. Martha stopped and stared at her bloody mother-in-law, and she continued to hear her own mother's voice coaxing her to kill Mariah. Martha dropped the axe and raised her right leg over Mariah and began to stomp, feeling Mariah's ribs cracking beneath her. Ah. Yeah. And these are all things that she would kind of like later claim yeah. yeah i mean obviously all of this part of the story is going to be her yeah her account of it yeah because there's no other witnesses until the parts where there are but yeah. yeah so martha then ran around and picked up the axe once again but this time she would use the sharp edge she struck making a large gouge in mariah's scalp she struggled to get out of the floorboard but then raised it again and brought it down cutting through her neck oh my god yeah she has at least at that point shot of her misery, but damn. Yeah. She pulled it up once again, and one more blow would lead to full decapitation. Yeah. It's, I just, it's a I lot. can't yeah. fathom couldn't, any of it. Couldn't be me. So Martha stepped backwards, removed the blade from the floor one more time, and her thoughts began to race. She moved into the kitchen and took a plate from the counter and set it in the middle of the table. She took a knife and fork from the cluttered countertop and placed on each side. She then placed Mariah's head on top of it, leaving the trail of blood. She adjusted the plate so it would face Alfie's chair. It's unknown as if it was supposed to be more of a for Alfie. Some places mention that, but some places also say so Mariah could stare at her son. Okay. And this is when she drug the corpse into the kitchen and decided burn. She found an old lamp and poured kerosene from it across the body. She then added some old potatoes. Uh, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. Make a I dish. guess they're flammable. Yeah, sure. 
And then she added some of the burning coals from the stove to actually start ignite the fire. She then decided to get rid of her clothes because they were covered in blood. So she threw that on the fire too. Then she noticed the photo of her children on the floor, picked it up, wiped the blood from it and put it in next to her chest for safety. Yeah. She left through the back door and she laid the ax under some boards that sat in the yard. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, this is when Alfie was returning home from for lunch. When he arrived, he saw the door was messed up, went in, saw the smoke, saw the quote unquote present his wife had left for him and ran screaming outside and he ran away from the house. Yeah. As smoke began to spread, some nearby neighbors, Charlie Goyt, saw Alfie running and then saw the smoke billowing from his house. So they were like, oh, Alfie's house is on fire. Yeah. So he called for his brother, Will, and the two started to run towards the house. Willie Wigand, another neighbor, saw the Goyt brothers running and decided to join them. So when the men arrived, Charlie grabbed a bucket in the backyard and started to fill it from a pump. And the three formed, like, basically an assembly line, throwing water through the house, the rear window of the house. One of them went to then break another window on the other side of the house to throw more water through. This is when John Robinson, one of the workers at the mill, saw it as well, grabbed a bucket from the mill and came over to help as well. Yeah. So Robinson, though, actually entered the house and he smelled the distinct odor of kerosene. He noticed the fire seemed to be in the kitchen, so he headed in there, saw the smoldering pile. And so he was putting that out. And that's when he realized it was a body. Ooh. He then turned around, noticed the unfortunate scene on the table yeah. and stood in disbelief. Then Martha calmly walked back out from the bedroom and into the kitchen, still in her undergarments. She walked past, bent down, moved some of the potatoes on the floor, then turned around and returned to the bedroom. Robinson was just like absolute shock. Like, what do you these potatoes? They need to be over here now. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. So he like probably couldn't move for a second because he was just like, what? And then Martha came out a couple minutes later from the bedroom, but this time wearing a dress. Uh She then walked to the living room, laid down on the lounge for a moment, then sat up, kneeled on the lounge and started to peel the paper from the walls. Okay, sure. So finally the fire was out and the Goit brothers and Will Wagon stood outside confused as to why Robinson was still inside. Like the fire's out. Why are you in there, bro? In the meantime, word had spread quickly to the fire. People were starting to gather. Robinson did eventually slowly back out of the house, keeping his eyes on Martha because don't trust that. Yeah. He noticed her get up from the lounge and leave the house through the back door. In the backyard, she was seen to kneel down and began to dig frantically with her hands. Okay. So Alfie found Deputy Lorinder and the pair headed back towards the house as fast as the carriage would take them. Lorinder jumped out of the carriage, ran towards the house and told Alfie to stay with the carriage. He didn't need to go see that again. When he passed the stave mill, he spotted Robinson, who was pointing him towards the backyard. There, he spotted Martha. So Robinson Loringer slowly approached her. Loringer asked Martha what was going on. He startled her. And with a blank look on her face, she told the two that she had killed her mother-in-law, then let out a small little cough from the smoke. <laughs> then the eerie grin crept under her face. Martha told him she had cut off the head of the old woman. Yeah. The men gently grabbed her arms and stood her up. Loringer placed shackles on her wrists and asked Robinson to stay with Mrs. Haney while he went inside. He exited almost as quickly as he'd entered. He signed Robinson and a few men to take watch of the house while they took Martha lockup. This is when J.J. Rayleigh arrived and gets us back to kind of where we started. Yeah. So everything moved really quickly for this case, we'll say. Okay. That same day, six men were gathered to serve as jurors to assess the scene and witnesses. This was done at the house itself in those days, I 
apparently during Uh the murder. So Deputy Whitehead was put to the task to gather six men and a man named Justice McNally was also called in. The proceedings were brought to order with the jurors entering the house and examining it. The witnesses were called, all basically saying the same thing. And uh, Robinson was one of the bigger ones, just having actually interacted with Martha. And he felt that Martha was trying to dig maybe to bury the body. Yeah, that's kind of what my thought was. Or maybe she was like Sandcastle. I mean, possibly. Yeah. Therapy for her digging. Yeah. Dogs like to dig. I mean, yeah. People might like kids like to dig. Yeah. There's a whole movie about it. (laughs) I don't know that they liked it in that movie. I don't know (laughs) if that was the point of that movie. It's been a while, but I don't think they liked it. No, no, it's definitely punishment. <laughs> it's pretty bad, yeah. So Undertaker Fred Rockwell was now free to take care of the body and the scene as well. So that kind of all happened. Mm-hmm. That evening, Rayleigh, J.J. Rayleigh, transported Martha to Ingham County Jail in Mason, the one at his house. Uh-huh. And when they arrived, they took Martha up to a cell on the second floor. As the first floor was, floor was all men. J.J.'s wife, Sarah, cooked her husband some food as she knew it had been a long time since he'd eaten. And yeah. she assumed... Martha hadn't either, so she made her some fried pork fat, three slices of bread, and a small cup of tea. Uh-huh. Martha wrapped herself in an old blanket, stared at the floor, and basically left it all untouched. JJ was worried Martha might make an attempt on her life, so he slept outside her cell. Around 3 a.m., he was awoken by sounds, and Martha started to beg to go back to Williamston. JJ agreed, but only to appease her and basically hope that she would sleep. Also, he, I believe that evening he had given her morphine or yeah. tried to give her morphine, but just she was complaining about her head hurting. So it was. I have some morphine. Yeah. Well, no, he was trying to give her morphine just so she would. Yeah. Sleep. Yeah. But then Martha asked if she was going to be whipped and started to pace some more. Eventually, though, she did lay down with her eyes open, eventually falling in and out of sleep a little bit with bouts of tears in between mm-hmm. uh, while stroking the photo of her children. Okay. So when morning broke, she wasn't crying. She was just sitting on the floor with her head between her knees, hands clasped behind her back, and started to mumble and kind of pace back and forth again. Yeah. In Williamston, that same morning, Saturday morning, the next day, Alfie, his brother Riley, and sister Louise would attend their mother's funeral surrounded by the community, Mm -hmm. which is really quick. Yeah. So Sarah then brought the morning meal to the cell, three slices of bread, five mealy potatoes, and some weak coffee. Mm Mm-hmm. JJ entered the cell to switch the plate from the night before. And in a monotone voice, Martha repeated, I killed her. JJ started to question, who did you kill? She answered, she was trying to kill me and I killed her. She hit me in the back with something. Who did you kill, Martha? Then Martha broke and began to wail. They said they were going to kill me. They pulled the windows and blinds and kept me a long time. My head, it hurts. I got on top of her and I struck her. Then JJ asked if she felt bad about killing, to which she responded, No, no, I don't feel bad so long as I don't do it to be mean. Interesting. Yeah. And her demeanor was kind of constantly changing. Yeah. So JJ did have to go. So he left uh, Turnkey in charge. And several hours passed and Turnkey Harrington began to, he was on the first floor because he was watching the whole jail. Yeah. And he began to hear some noises from upstairs. So he went up there and Martha was standing in the back corner of her cell, smashing her head against the iron slats. Yikes. He feared she might be injuring herself. So he, you know, tried to enter and started to call for help. Uh, Martha heard those stop, turned towards him and began to sing and pray. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when she was done, she fell to the floor in a fit. So Dr. Sidney Culver and Mason was contacted to come check on her and make sure that her head was okay. Yeah. 
There was no major, well, well, yeah, there was no major physical damage, um, you know, some light bruising and things like that. Culver also recognized Martha, though, from when she lived in Mason. And he told Rayleigh of a story when she had visited him asking for treatment. He had tried to help her, but it was apparent she should have been in an asylum. Yeah. Not just, you know, visiting a doctor. Yeah. This would have required her brother, Richard, to make an application through the court to have her declared insane. So later, Culver had received a letter from Martha saying she was going to Pennsylvania to marry a doctor named Kenyon. And he just didn't see her after that. Yeah. So I think he figured she was getting help. Yeah. Yeah. Her behavior for the next few hours settled a bit, mostly just sat on the floor, all that. Occasional bouts of crying. Mm -hmm. The same day, JJ filed a a written complaint to Justice Squires for an arrest warrant so that basically on Monday, April 26th, she could go before Justice Squires and start proceedings. Mm -hmm. Later that day, her brother Richard came to visit her in prison. Mm -hmm. But when he got there and asked if she knew him, she responded, I don't know you, never saw you before. Wow. Richard tried to jog her memory. I'm your brother, you know, all that kind of stuff. Her reply was, no, Jesus has got him. I don't know you. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So JJ jumped in and kind of said, okay, well, then what has old Mariah Haney? And her reply, Jesus, of course. Mm-hmm. So a question continued. And when asked why she committed the crime, she said, quote, my mother came from heaven and told me to do it. Then she began to pray and tried coaxing the gentleman to join her. Saying, oh, I can't go to heaven. To hell I must go. Murders don't go to heaven. And that is where I'm bound to go. On repeat. Yikes. The visit ended. JJ asked Richard to attend the hearing on Monday, to which he agreed. Richard tried to visit again on Sunday. She still didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. So he had filed that um, the complaint of murder on Saturday, and he spoke to pro- probate Judge Porter to attempt to have her declared insane, which would ensure her incarceration into the Michigan Asylum for Dangerous and Criminally Insane in Ionia, mm-hmm. which is now, I believe, the State Hospital in Ionia, Michigan okay. State Hospital in Ionia. It changed names. Yeah. But Judge Porter informed him that the matter was beyond his jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to why that's kind of important because there's actually a distinction between when she's actually declared. Yeah. And same. So Monday morning, April 26th, Richard met JJ and Sarah at the jail to meet with the Justice of Peace. John Robinson would join from Williamson as well as to provide written affidavits from both the sheriff and himself. Really went to retrieve Martha from her cell and she held the same blank numb stare. When the justice asked her to describe the events, she wouldn't speak, to which he reported her to be insane. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it feels weird using the word insane because it's just not yeah, a great word because it got so much put on it. Yeah. But 1897 terms. Yeah. So she was still in JJ's custody until a hearing at circuit court, which happened the next day, Tuesday the 27th. That morning, Richard, Sarah, and Martha took a train to Lansing. They arrived and entered an elevator which Martha had never seen before. So it freaked her out and it took them some time to get her on it. Yeah. At 11 a.m., court was called to session with the Honorable Judge Rollin H. Pearson. And needless to say, when she was asked questions, they received no response. Yeah. When the judge was telling her that she was being charged with murder and asked if she understood, she responded by rambling and basically saying she did, but she had to do it. Then she looked at the judge and stated, there are some things I won't tell you even if I'm killed for it. Cryptic. Yep. So the judge had the court clerk enter a plea of not guilty. Mm -hmm. Before proceedings went any further, the judge would have to appoint a commission to determine if she was indeed insane. Mm -hmm. Because if she was tried on the charge of murder and found not guilty by reason of insanity, she would be acquitted of the murder and sent to asylum. Where if she was released from it, 
she would not be guilty, meaning that she would just be free. Oh God. Yeah. Because you, you know, double jeopardy. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. You can't try twice. But if she was declared insane before the trial started, then she would be sent to the asylum and not tried unless she recovered. So basically put off an actual trial unless Mm -hmm. she was released. Okay. Three doctors were sent for Dr. Culver from Mason, who we've already met, Dr. Alexander McMillan and Dr. Elmer North of Lansing. So court took a recess while the men arrived. Martha was placed in Lansing jail for recess. And this is when a woman named Ruth Shank, local artist for the paper, sketched a rendering of her. So we do have one rendering of Martha. Nice. When anyone came near Martha, though, the rest of the day, she became more and more frightened and began to beg JJ and Sarah not to let anybody hurt her. By mid-afternoon, two doctors arrived, began to speak with her. Of course, same yeah. stuff we've already heard. She also hit them with a, I won't tell you even if you kill me. So this has kind of become her new thing. Yeah. The doctors prepared their assessment that evening. And on Wednesday morning at 8 a.m., court convened. And they stated the obvious. Judge person ordered that under Michigan law, she was to be taken to the asylum for the dangerous and criminally insane in Ionia. Mm-hmm. As Martha was let out, she began to hum to herself. JJ, Sarah, and Martha were then taken to the train station so the couple could escort her to the asylum. Yeah. The ride was a bit rough, though. Everyone on edge. She had been given some morphine, but she was in and out of fits. Mm -hmm. Opened in 1885, the Michigan Asylum was ran by Dr. Long, who used homeopathic care for patients. Mm -hmm. And it was a large complex starting with eight buildings, but it had grown in recent years. And it was known to be one of the most successful asylums in the nation, actually. Okay. Yeah. You don't hear that? Yeah. (laughs) But that being said, too, we all know mental health care is a very messed up space and particularly back then. Yeah. And in the late 1800s, there were several theories as to what caused insanity. Mm -hmm. And some of this might be a little refresher, but many believed it was caused by poverty. Some believe it was inherited and some believed it was what they called moral degeneracy, basically born with badness of character. Okay. Fortunately, this led to the development of eugenics. Mm. In 1897, so the same year, Michigan was the first state in the nation to propose eugenics-based legislation. The bill called for the castration of certain criminals, and of course, we know it was supported by... Kellogg. Kellogg. We also know the bill didn't pass. However, 16 years later, the state adopted a forced sterilization policy applicable to the mentally defective or insane in public institutions. Mm-hmm. And that lasts to like the 70s, I'm pretty sure. Something entirely too Something- long. Something... Way too long. Yeah. Yeah, Like it just, it blows my mind and it's terrifying and horrible. So as the train rolled in, Diane Young, Martha's breathing was very laborious, sweat rolling down her forehead. The trio arrived and approached what appeared almost to be a small city. There were six buildings for residents, number five being specifically for women. Mm -hmm. In addition to this, there's also things like a greenhouse, laundry, water tower, warehouse, garage, maintenance building, slaughterhouse, you know, things like that. The inmates, as part of treatment, kept gardens, landscaped, and worked outside. On the east side, there was a cemetery and eight small houses for employees. Mm-hmm. So JJ had to sign some paperwork while the nursing staff took in Martha. Mm-hmm. Upon leaving, this would be the last time JJ and Sarah would ever see Martha Haney. Mm-hmm. Martha lived out her days at the asylum. When not consumed by her fits, she was basically allowed to roam free on her floor. Mm-hmm. But the day she was delivered, she was examined by a medical professional. As well. I mean, well. There wasn't really psychiatrists. They, you, a doctor yeah. was a doctor, but like she was examined for medical things when she yeah. arrived as well. And it was discovered she was actually suffering from consumption. Oh. 
Yeah. So she never really regained an appetite. She mm-hmm. basically would refuse to eat often and her coughing, she it's would get worse. little coughing fits and they would get worse. And 17 short months after arriving on September 24th of 1898, Martha passed away. Not shocking given it was consumption. No. As for Alfie Haney, mm-hmm. he was very deeply troubled by the death of his mother. I mean, that's very traumatic. Absolutely, yeah. But he also enjoyed a little bit of his local fame. Mm-hmm. He, however, would never speak of Martha again. Understandable. Yeah. But three years after his mother's death, he started a relationship with a woman named Alice Cornell near Lansing. Mm-hmm. The relationship grew to be romantic and he moved in with her. But word spread that the two unmarried lovers were living together and both were arrested. Oh, my gosh. Yes. The prosecuting attorney charged both Alfie and Alice with lewd and lascivious, which I had to look up because I've never seen this word, yeah. means filled with or showing sexual desire. Oh, God. Cohabitation. Yikes. On August 13th, 1900, Alfie pled guilty to the charge. And on September 10th, he was sentenced to 10 months in the good old Detroit House of Corrections for his lack of judgment and decency. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. As for Alice, she too pled guilty on September 22nd. Her sentence of eight months, though, in the Detroit House of Corrections was just deferred and she was released. Alfie continued to find work as a day laborer and Alfie and Alice went on to get married and continued to live in Lansing. However, in 1910, Alice passed away, leaving Alfie a widower. So he moved back to Williamston with his brother, Riley, and his wife and their two daughters. Riley passed in 1923. And as of 1930, Alfie was living in the county's poor house in Okemos, where he remained until he passed at the age of 76 from a stroke. And last little update. The house itself remained there for many years, many not knowing its history. The writer of the book even tells about when he was in college and he went to a party at that house and nobody knew any of this. Oh, wow. But it has since been burned down in 1990 in a controlled burn by the Williamson Fire Department for, I think, for like development of land. They're just like a cleansing fire is the only way. Yeah. And that is the unfortunate, gruesome and why mental health care is important story yes. of Mariah Haney, Martha Haney, Alfie Haney. The Haney's. The Haney's. The Haney's crimes. Very Haney's crimes. Uh, well, didn't, that was uh, a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I read a blurb about it and it it was always gross. Right. But it's one of those ones I started getting into and I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This just gets worse. And I don't know how I didn't see it coming. I mean, like. Right. I knew it was going to be bad, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. And again, another reason why we need to take mental health seriously. Yes. And it's Mental Health Awareness Month, I do believe, right now. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you've (laughs) definitely earned a two truths and a lie after that. Yeah. Well, I have two truths and a lie from Excellent. Mental Floss, okay. our favorite. Uh, and it's about Mother's Day. Since today oh, yeah. is Mother's Day. Number one, it's the second busiest day for the restaurant industry behind Valentine's Day. Number two, Anna Jarvis was an early campaigner for Mother's Day, but only a few years after it became a holiday, she wanted to rescind it. It basically like make it not a holiday again. Mm-hmm. And then number three, carnations became the symbol of Mother's Day pretty early on. I feel like I've heard some of them, but 
I'm going to go with three being the lie. Three is true. Dang it. Uh, carnations are kind of the symbol of Mother's Day. And traditionally, you would wear a red carnation to honor a living mother and a white one to honor a deceased mother. Carnations just remind me of when you could like pay 50 cents and get a carnation delivered to your friend's room in grade school. Yeah. No, <laughs> like same. I kind of just like I'm like, oh, carnation. Interesting. Yeah. Like they're not bad. But right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with one being the lie because I think it's actually the busiest. I think it's busy. You are Valentine's correct. Day. Yeah. That is it is number one. That yeah. is the lie. So. I guess an estimated 80 million adults uh, dine out on Mother's Day. That's so many. Yeah. So Anna Jarvis did. She was like, she wasn't the first person to suggest Mother's Day, but she was one of like, oh, we should actually make this happen. Yeah. And like she had no children of her own, but she wanted to honor her mother who yeah. like did like charity work in West Virginia to help like mothers in need. Mm-hmm. And so she started this holiday. It gets passed. And then like Anna sees how commercialized it's became and she's like just kidding if you're gonna commercialize it let's not do it and then uh obviously didn't work still around yep oh yeah in full Uh, force yeah uh and just like two other fun facts mother's day was originally suggested by a poet by the name of julia ward howe who wanted a day to celebrate peace and protest war okay this was like in 1870 after the civil war yeah and then Phone and text traffic get significantly boosted on Mother's Day. Oh, that also makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So in 2020... Call your mother. Right. In 2020, Verizon reported a 13% increase in phone calls and a 25% increase in text messages when compared to an average Sunday. Mm-hmm. And like you might think, oh, it was a pandemic year, but like they also took the measurements in 2018. It was like 11% increase in phone calls on Mother's oh, I'm Day. I'm not surprised. Oh, not at all. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes total sense. Yeah, so that's some fun Mother's Day yeah. stuff. Well, happy belated Mother's Day to any mothers listening. Yeah. We love a mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I th- that... Uh, I think we're wrapped. We are wrapped like, like... Like a bouquet of carnations. Yes. Yeah. Wrapped like a bouquet of carnations. If you want to follow the show, you can find us on our social media at Detroit Strange on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And our email address, if you have anything you want to tell us, if you find Jimmy Hoffa, yeah. DetroitStrange at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, support the show. We got Patreon. We Five-star reviews are always welcome and great. And free. Tell Yeah. Tell a friend. Uh, thread the shop for some merchy merch merch. And if you're around the Hamtramck area on Thursday nights, come check out Ants in the Hall. Yeah. We're our, both in it. Our weekly show. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to see us live and in person. Yeah. Weekly until question mark. Yeah. But I think. Until next time. Stay strange. This has been a production of Planet Ant Podcast, powered by Pinecast. Our theme song was recorded by Detroit's own Sax and Violence.